everyone, it's Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. I'm Arya Borkoff, and welcome to Kindred Cast. Today, we're here with MSNBC President Rashida Jones. Uh, we've met a few times now uh, mm-hmm. from uh, Stockholm to here in New York. Yep. Rashida is the first Black executive to lead one of the major news networks, and uh, she brings with her a sharp editorial eye in addition to her drive and focus. Prior to taking on the role of president in February of 2021, you served as senior vice president of NBC News and MSNBC. Mm -hmm. And in this position, you spearheaded cross-platform breaking news and major events for both networks, including coverage of the coronavirus pandemic and the network's decision 2020 coverage, including presidential debates, town halls, primaries, and special election nights and forums. So thank you so much for being here. We have a lot to cover ahead of next week's big midterm election event. Yep. So I want to talk to you first about what we talked over lunch about, which is how you got here, your personal background. It wasn't a linear path to necessarily become head of MSNBC and news programs, but has it always been your dream to get to news media? I always knew I wanted to be a storyteller. I knew I wanted to be in a leadership role. I didn't necessarily know that all of those things existed in one job until I was in college. But by the third grade, I knew I wanted to be a writer who told amazing personal stories. And it was really in the first few weeks when I started college at Hampton University that I discovered there was a role that combined all of these things. You could be a leader, which as the oldest of three kids, I've always been told I'm either bossy or a leader. So there was a leadership aspect. There was the storytelling. And then there was this other element that brought it all together, which was public service. And so really, since I was 17 years old, I've had one goal in mind, one track and one direction. I can't say I knew at that time how big and how far it would go, but I knew I wanted to go in one direction since I was 17. Which was a long time ago. And that direction was to be in a leadership position. So a producer, and every job I've had has been some version of being a producer. It's a role where not only do you get to tell stories, but you get to lead a team. And you get to lead a team in different aspects on different levels. And as a show producer, I was the person who not only had to write the stories, select the stories, assign the stories, but I also had to lead the team in the direction that that newscast was going to go. And so all of those things combined into one job. And that's essentially what I've done since I was a teenager. But where did you grow up before 17 years old? I was born in York, Pennsylvania. It's nine square miles, home of the peppermint patty, if you've ever had a York peppermint patty. And it was a very interesting city to grow up in. My parents were both there. My dad went to York College and he started college in his 30s. And so he wound up in York from Philadelphia because of his time in college. My mom moved there with him. They had my sister and brother and I. And we grew up in a a very urban town, very urban neighborhood that also had a Catholic school a few blocks away. Now, most of our classmates were kids who grew up in the suburbs and bust in, kind of a reverse of how it happens in most cases. They bust into this Catholic school that was in our neighborhood. We walked through Penn Park to get to school. And so as a result, my sister, my brother and I, we, for most of the time we were there, were really the only Black kids in the entire school. Yeah. Yeah. And you said to me before that you've always felt that you were underestimated. Yeah. Is that because you were one of the only black kids or because that was just a feeling you always had? I think it was more outward than inward. You know, I've never felt 
or I won't say never because I'm human, but I did not grow up feeling like I didn't belong or lesser than or less educated or less qualified to do anything that I did. But when you grow up in a space where all of your classmates don't look like you, they have a life experience that's completely different from yours. I think they make assumptions. I remember very clearly, I may have been in the second grade because second grade in Catholic school, you learn handwriting. I remember I had straight A's and in handwriting, you got scored for either O for outstanding, S for satisfactory, and for needs improvement. I had straight A's. And I remember my dad asking the teacher, so she got an S in handwriting. Do you think she's going to be a doctor? Because there must be a reason she's a straight A student and got an S in handwriting. But that speaks to how we were raised. Both of my parents and my dad especially really pushed for excellence. There was no choice other than to hit 100%, to do the best. If there's an assignment and there's an optional portion of the assignment, you're going to do the optional portion. I'm a little less disciplined in that way with my kids. I'm just a sucker and fine, just take a nap and don't do it. But the way we were raised, there was no choice but to be excellent. And so in a space where I was always on the honor roll, I was often the smartest kid in class. I still had people in my class questioning whether I was supposed to be there, questioning whether I was as smart as they were, questioning whether I had the same potential that they were. And for me, it was more of a drive. It was more of an encouragement of, I'm going to show them what I already know. Yeah. But now having come so far, I know we're in the middle chapters here, I hope this is just the middle. This is the middle, yeah, but (laughs) you've come so far in your career. Do you still feel underestimated? I think, again, it's still more of an outward thing than an inward thing. I don't in any way feel that I am in any position that I haven't earned, that I haven't worked my butt off for, and that I haven't poured everything into to excel. Now, like anyone in a position of power and profile, you're going to get people who are doubters. You're going to get people who are haters. You're going to get people who pray for your downfall or pray for a mistake pray for a misstep. Kind of in the same way in that second grade Rashida with my plaid skirt, my knee socks, I'm still motivated by that. It's like, fine, you can doubt me. You can second guess me. You can underestimate me. And then when I come back and show you that I've excelled tenfold, there's nothing left to say other than to show you the results. Yeah. You channel that into fuel. Fuel is pure fuel. Yeah. I like that. Okay. So now you're promoted to president of MSNBC. Yeah. That's the drive and still going. You worked at the network for seven years. So how has the network evolved in that time? How have you seen it change? Because the network news business has constantly been evolving in audience and viewership and demographics and just the programming overall. How have you seen it change then now if you've taken over? What's your vision for it? Sure. So as you look at the last several years, we've seen such a fast shift in how people consume content. If I took this job a few years ago, I would have said I'm the president of a channel called MSNBC. My function now is to manage a brand called MSNBC. And that manifests itself as a channel, as a streaming service, podcast, social video, original content on various platforms. We're everywhere. And so one of the big changes is it's not less focused because we still have a very successful, very profitable linear business. It's expanded. And so we just do more. We're following the trends of consumption where audiences are consuming content in a lot of different ways and platforms that didn't exist a few years ago. So we've got to think both how do you maintain the success of the present? How do you prepare for the future? And the future is speeding up faster and faster. So there isn't a lot of runway to get to there because there is here now. And what we're doing now is now. And so it's all of these things happening at the same time. But who drives, because I agree with you, it's sort of like what exists today and what you're preparing for in the innovative economy. And it's all happening today. And right. The younger demographic is dictating a lot of that. But are you leading the evolution of that innovation forward or is the market leading you 
Which yeah. one is driving which? The innovation started with the marketplace. Yeah. The audience started migrating from linear platforms to these other spaces. And so we've had to respond in kind. And now it's a little bit of a race of how do we create new relevancy in these platforms where they've already started consuming? Audiences have shifted to streaming platforms, for example, but there isn't a lot of news content on streaming. So we've had to innovate as to what that looks like. We're creating it in real time and we're creating it while maintaining very successful linear businesses. The audience started that race, but now we're trying to get ahead of them to answer what they need and what they want from brands that are trusted. We know the audience loves what we do on linear. We know there's high engagement. We know people watch for hours a week. How do we take that same passion and that same engagement to a platform that's new to the audience? They haven't even decided their viewing patterns or their consumption patterns. So we're helping them build that as we build these new products. Yeah. And when you say the news goes on to streaming, for example, is that Peacock in this case for Comcast? Yeah. For MSNBC, most of our content exists on Peacock. What helps is we have a service in-house that serves as not only an original content creator, but an aggregator across the entire NBC Universal portfolio. This is a world where you can get content from NBC News, from MSNBC, but also Bravo and USA and Universal Pictures and Universal Films. And so for us, Peacock kind of becomes a home base of all of this content where it's built in, it's in-house, and we have a, a distribution platform already set up. Yeah. So what does the MSNBC brand stand for? Because I know what Fox stands for, and I know what CNN stood for, and obviously it's evolving. But what does MSNBC stand for as a brand? Sure. Our focus is really how do we take the world that's happening around us and offer the audience a deeper understanding of why it's happening, what's happening, what does it mean for me? When you're sitting around the kitchen table with your family, how do I take the issues of the day and make them make sense as I'm making informed decisions about my life, my family, whether it's voting, whether it's in practices and policy? Our focus is really depth. How do we provide the depth and context in a way that you can't see anywhere else? In a world where Twitter exists and Twitter is evolving right before our eyes today. But what we know is Twitter being this place where if there is a story that happens, if I wake up in the morning and something broke overnight, I can get quick confirmation on Twitter. To me, the news environment isn't a place just to get the who, what, when, where, because I can get that from a lot of places. What we offer as a value proposition is the why and bringing all of the basic principles together, the who, the what, the where, but really focusing on why things are happening is where I think we are a differentiator. And how much do you want MSNBC to be part of the culture of our time? Because obviously it's important to you, given your background and given obviously things that we've talked about. Right. But in terms of mentorship and the brand itself, how much do you want it to be part of the cultural significance? of the moment that we're in. Yeah, I don't think there's an option to be. As we think about covering a world that has broad stripes and broad backgrounds and broad perspectives, I also want to make sure our content, our people, the stories that we select reflect the audience that's consuming us. We have one of the most diverse audiences on television. I've really put a lot of focus into not just speaking to one portion of the audience and whether that's political, philosophical, ideological, but also from an age standpoint, there may be stories that are very relevant to a subset of our audience that others don't understand that we have to add context to, that we need to put a spotlight on. And so one of the things that we've really focused on is how do we broaden our aperture a bit? How do we talk to a broader set of our audience? How do we create content that's better reflective of the audiences that are consuming us? And I think some of that is the cultural stuff. My version of culture and what I grew up listening to and watching and consuming might be different from other people. So we've got to cover all of that stuff. Yeah. Is that the center or is that just the audience? Because everyone's trying to get to the community that is most engaged in not just news, but the channel itself. But I view MSNBC as close to the center 
as we've seen in terms of news or channels. But how do you define the audience overall? Is it just the most diverse audience? It's definitely the most diverse audience, but diverse means a lot of things. When we do segmentation studies and they put people in buckets and the buckets of audience that consumes us covers the New Yorkers, the Midwesterners, the Westerners, high income, lower income. We just reach a broader scope of people. And those are the people who are watching us. I need to cover stories that are of equal import to the East Coast elites, as they call them, the West Coast consumers, the folks in the middle of the country. We just have to hit all of those things because that's what our audience expects from us. That's better representative of the country that we're covering. And, you know, when you talk about the center, we're the heartbeat. What we're covering is really the heartbeat of the nation and the stories that not only intersect all of those universes, but finding pockets and ways to cover stories that deep dive into some of those communities as well. Yeah. And there's been a lot of demographic shift because obviously with the pandemic, people have moved locations. Right. People think Texas is a new California, for example. We don't know what kind of state it's going to be, whether it's purple or blue or red. It's so funny you said that. I had a conversation with one of my anchors yesterday And she recently did a show in Texas and she said, most people hear Texas and they get to the punchline of it's it's only conservative, it's only this demographic. And it discounts all of the other communities that are reflected in that state. And Texas is such a big state that when you look at the tapestry that is Texas, it's not just one thing anymore. And I think it's evolved where it's definitely more purple than it used to be. It's some of those stereotypes or assumptions we have about some of these communities, whether it's the migration because of COVID or just the migration because of ideological thought. The world is changing. And I think it's important for us to go into it, assuming that things are changing, to go into it, listening to people on the ground, getting into those communities, better understanding versus just doing it behind the desk, which is one of the things we try to focus on. Correct. So in that vein and knowing that things have been shifting and obviously there's an unpredictable dynamic here at large because of that and because of other factors, how is MSNBC and how are you approaching the midterm elections? We're putting a lot of resource into it. We spend a lot of time on the ground. Polling, for example, is a resource, but we know it's not the absolute resource. We know there are some states that poll better than others. We know there are some issues that show up in polls better than others. And so instead of just relying on polling, which we do use as a resource, but we use it in conjunction with a bunch of other resources, we've spent a lot of time in the weeks and now days leading up to election day being on the ground, talking to voters, really understanding what are the issues that are driving decisions for this election. So that's been a big part of it. What are people actually saying beyond just what they're telling pollsters? And polling is such a small subset of any community. Let's get to as many people as we can in key locations and not just the same places we go to every time. Every election is its own snowflake. And there are certain, whether it's down to the county level or region or state level, there are specific dynamics of this election that are going to be variables compared to others. So being on the ground is a big part of it. We've spent a lot of time not only covering, but preparing for this new wave of disinformation. Disinformation has existed for a long time, but every election, it becomes a bigger factor, a bigger element. We have an entire team focused on disinformation. And how do we not only get a better sense of what some of those issues are in places that are not necessarily above the radar, where there's a sentiment growing before it hits mainstream that we may be able to see and telegraph and better understand that psyche? How do we use data in a way that is a better storytelling vehicle? And we've spent really probably the week, if not two weeks after the last election in 20 
gaming out. What technology do we want to have for 22? What features do we want to have for 22? What information will, will be helpful to illustrate for 22? So we've been working on that for two years now. And you see some of that with the Steve Kornackis of the world and how we display and slice data. I'm a preparer. It, you can control a lot of things and the things that you can control, you prepare for. But there's the other piece, which is the unexpected. Yes. And one of the things that I've really guided all of the teams on is we have to go into this expecting the unexpected. We have to go into this. And the best TV is TV that's unscripted and go into it knowing in real time, we're going to have to adjust. There may be an outcome that we're expecting in this way that completely shifts. There is a such thing as a surprise on election night. It happens every year and we're surprised that we're surprised. So we go into it with prepare with everything that you can for everything that you can, but go in with a sense of curiosity, go in with a sense of uncertainty and live in the moment. And the, again, creating content, creating television, the most fun content to create is content that you don't know what to expect. We almost have to put all of the preparation behind us and just go in with a little bit of a clear head and be prepared to expect the unexpected. But you have covered a lot of breaking political news yeah. in your career so far. And some of that has been surprising to you because yeah. even if you are prepared, there's a bar that keeps going higher in this country or maybe lower in this country in terms of what can be surprising to us. So what are some of those stories that really have surprised you that you weren't expecting or maybe some that you may be preparing for next week? I talked about disinformation and you can have a sense of the level of misguided content that's out there. But then when you see it play out, it's still surprising to me. So one of our reporters who really focuses on this dark web disinformation space, Ben Collins, he had a powerful segment on Morning Joe. This was a few days after the attack on Paul Pelosi. And he talked about some of the conspiracy theories that he was seeing online. This is a person that lives in this world. He lives in this world. He reads these feeds and nothing should surprise him. And on this show, and this was a few days after that attack, he got a little emotional recounting what he was seeing as far as rhetoric around that attack. And if someone like that who reads and sees it and breathes it every day, we always say he lives it so we don't have to, is surprised by what we're seeing. I think we all stand to be surprised. For me, it's the stories that I have a tough time explaining to my kids. We've got teenagers and th there are some stories that I can intellectually cover as a journalist and we go into action. January 6th was a good example of that. We know what to do and let's get the right people on the ground and we're staying in rolling coverage and, and this moment is happening. And then I get a call from my then 15 year old and he said, mom, why did this happen? And I said, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. And those are the ones that are most surprising where I can't explain. I know intellectually why something like that happened, but to explain to a kid who's going to be able to vote in a few years, to explain to a kid who grew up in the social media era, so he's seen everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but to have to explain it to teenagers, those are the ones that still surprise me. Yeah. And I think that gets to a topic that I wanted to talk about, which is media responsibility, yeah. because growing up in the media business and broadcast television and cable television, there is a framework for what people talk about. But then we're faced with the creator economy and social media platforms, short form, long form, that basically exposes all kinds of rhetoric and talk and extremism. And there's really no framework anymore in terms of programming right. and packaging. Yep. And the news channels and the channels overall just have to react a little bit to get those audience engaged to a point, but there's still a framework. And that kind of raises the bar of responsibility for brands and celebrities and creators to adhere to a certain level of responsibility for the audiences that they bring with them because of their 
artistry. So how do you draw the line between what is hard news programming and what is perspective programming and opinions? Because there's room for both, but there's a line there. There's definitely room for both. And I agree there's a line. And for us, any kind of content we put out there has to have the same foundation of journalism, whether it's through the perspective of that host or our hard news content. We have a baseline, a certain level of standard where we don't just throw out information that's not verifiable, that's not well-sourced, that's not legitimate. Every show, every platform, every outlet has that same expectation. And then from there, you kind of have the tree trunk, which is this, you know, everyone's got the same expectation. And then you get the branches that build from there. And depending on the show, it may be a show that focuses more on that specific host perspective on the foundation of journalism. It may be a show that focuses specifically on the live world as it's happening in front of us. When you talk about responsibility and our responsibility as journalists, we owe it to our audience to be responsible with the information that we have to provide the proper context and perspective. And that comes from anything that we do being based in that journalism foundation. Yeah. Well, I remember when we spoke in Stockholm at Brilliant Minds, you were on stage and you were talking about context, that what differentiates you and MSNBC is that you put context around just the video programming. So what happened yesterday or today, and you give a bit of a narrative arc to it, where maybe on social media, they'll just give you the video clip but there'll be no, no understanding context. of where yeah. it came from and that can be misinterpreted completely. Mm-hmm. So maybe talk about context. Yeah, and I think for MSNBC in particular, we are the heartbeat. We're the place where people go to understand, to learn. Learn is one of those words that I like to go back to because with that comes a responsibility. In a world, especially the world right now, where false equivalencies are created every day and this idea of both sides and all of those things. None of that works without context. And it would be irresponsible for us just to put out information that we know is bad or misleading or designed to ill-inform because it's the, quote, other side of something. So part of our responsibility as journalists is to add that context. Part of our value as a news brand is to add context. Part of our superpower is to add that context. When you think about a Rachel Meadow who can spend a 25-minute segment explaining to you what could just be a one-line headline. That's context. That's the deeper understanding. And that's something that I think we uniquely focus on and we uniquely give because the audience expects it. The audience needs it. The audience deserves it. You need that kind of space to understand more than just what meets the eye in order to make an informed decision about how you feel about something. But the country is divided. It's often used that term, but it's more than just divided sort of in two. It's divided into many different slices and pies. And to some extent, that's good. There's many different opinions. To some extent, it's great programming. It's great for media to have differences of opinion. If everyone agrees with each other, it doesn't make for a lot of energy. But obviously, it can go too far. A lot of times, we we have gone too far in this country. What responsibility is it for MSNBC and the news to foster constructive dialogue out of that divisiveness versus to play into it because it's good programming? We have to, as a news brand, add value here. You know, it's not in any way our focus, our effort, our directive to divide, to create false equivalencies. When you're talking about differences of opinion, there should be a vast array of opinions. The challenge is when you get into a position where facts are being disputed. You've got three candles here. I can say this candle is halfway melted. You can say it's three quarters melted. He can say that's not a candle. Well, it is a candle, but we're operating on a different set of facts. I think in a world where the facts are being disputed, it makes it tougher. And I think that's what helps to facilitate some of the division for us and our focus. And and I talk to every single team, every single show, every single platform about this. We need to be constructive. We need to ensure that we're adding value 
that were a net positive to the conversation, being divisive for the sake of being divisive is not what we endeavor to do. It's not what our focus is. It's not helpful to the audience. You can deliver red meat to your base with the hopes of getting them riled up. But I think we've seen how that can turn bad, how it can create a culture where people have just a deep-rooted hatred based on bad information or false information or just for the sake of getting them riled up. I would much rather be a less successful network in a country that wasn't as divided. We're in no way trying to continue that division. And my hope is that we will hit some kind of ceiling to this feeling of division in the country. I think our focus right now has to be how do we continue to add the right perspective so people can eventually shed these silos, shed the division, and at least agree upon a baseline set of facts so then we can go and have our disagreements. We can have disagreements about the direction of an issue, but we can't have a disagreement about the facts. Yeah, because they're going to take you back to when you were 17 and maybe when I was that age too. Our generation had a certain definition to it, and maybe that's now permeated into climate change or humanity and knowledge-based thinking and education and maybe a lot of things, probably a lot of negative things as well. I'm sugarcoating it. If you ask our kids, and I've asked my daughter what her generation really stands for, and she would say it's about authenticity Mm -hmm. and being able to have an element of vulnerability put out there onto social media platforms and to express yourself in a very authentic way, which is what creates a little bit of this individual expression, which is a good thing, but also a lot of difference of opinions. I think that is great and healthy, but also flies in the face of our society not yet being willing to deal with disagreement. If everyone's expressing their authenticity, but we haven't really gotten to a place where we can deal with the disagreement and understanding of difference of opinion, then we hit a brick wall somewhere. You made me think about something, and I don't know the answer to this, but your point about authenticity is a good one. I don't know if the division that we're seeing now is a generational thing. I don't know that that level of division exists in the generation behind us, not on the level that it does. And we often have these conversations of, will the country ever get back to quote how it was? I wonder if this generation ages out in this division piece, because I don't see that we've got three teenagers and a 20 year old. Their generation is nowhere near as divided as ours. And so I think while there are lots of things that I would say I'm not envious about this generation, the focus on social media and fitting in and all of that stuff and how the lines are blurred and media consumption not my favorite thing for this generation, but I don't think that they are anywhere near as divided as we are. And as we think about how do we turn a page, how do we turn a corner? Again, this is an open question, I think for all of us is, I wonder if some of that gets aged out in this new generation. I wonder if if the unity is something that comes from that. Yeah, it's a hopeful thought, but also can you bridge some of that social media, younger demographic audience into the MSNBC news or otherwise channel programming and audience demographic now? Can you bridge those two things? I think there was a time where we used social media tools or digital tools as a marketing element to come back to the core business. So I very much remember being a much younger producer and I was an 11 p.m. producer on my show and I wrote my show and we did the show on air and 11.35 I went off the air. Part of my job before I could go to Magnolia's Bar in Norfolk was to take the scripts that we just aired, make them upper lowercase, send them to a web publisher as is. No edits, no original reporting, no original content. It would get published to our website. That was our version of a website. Now, instead of focusing on how do we get people from these digital properties to go to linear, we're not naive enough to think that that's the direction that content is consumed. 
our focus is how do we take our brand to the places where the consumers are consuming? So rather than just posting clips from our linear channel on a TikTok, for example, we create original content on TikTok because we know we're reaching a different generation, a different demographic, and they're interested in content. They're just not interested on your parents' version of it. Yeah, this, they right? want authenticity. They, they, want, want authenticity. they want an original program. And they don't want to hear it from me. So they want to hear it from Manny, who's on our TikTok page on MSNBC. They want to hear his take on it. And so we just actually hit a million followers on TikTok because the content we focus on isn't your parents' version of MSNBC. It's your version of MSNBC. Again, directionally, that's where we have to take this content. It's not designed to come back to the linear channel. You've already left the linear channel. If you're watching news on TikTok, my kids, for example, don't ever remember that we have cable because they never turn it on. They have a smart TV and if they want to watch something, they go to an app or they watch it on their phones. We're taking our content. And I think if you want to think about innovation in the future, we have to find ways to take the content authentically to those platforms where people are already consuming and almost abandon this idea of then trying to boomerang them back to home base because that's their new home base. Yeah, like everything, there's a gray area to life. If we can take the energy of what the demographic around social media really desires and also the interesting things about politics right. and news and bridges those together and the whole creator economy, but also add a level of responsibility yeah. that media has always been known for, especially in legacy media, and work together to create that. Then hopefully we get a better knowledge-based programming society that moves us all forward. Yeah, That's a utopian view. I think you're right. You talk about gray area and blurred lines. If I look at a video on the MSNBC page for any social media platform, it looks the same way as Joe Schmo on the street who just shot a stand-up saying some crazy thing happened that never happened. As a legacy organization, I lean into the legacy part of what you said because that means we're vetted, we're proven, we're trusted. I'm happy to take a brand like ours that has lived for 26 years and earned the trust of our audience to a platform like TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is and put them up against new wave journalists who don't have that same legacy because we've already proven that. And now we have to get that same respect from a new audience, but I'd rather you get it from us on your platform than get it from someone who pretends to be a journalist. Yeah, it's much harder to establish that credibility than to get it to a new platform. Yep. Well, we look forward to the next week and obviously the beginning of a lot of cycles around politics yeah. and the new cycle only gets more and more interesting from every here. Day. Yeah, every yeah. day. And uh, we look forward to your programming, your insights and thank you. keeping us smarter and knowledge-based and responsible. So thanks, Rashida. Appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you. Take care. You got it. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Thank you.